and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, I'm going to hit you with a bunch of numbers. This episode is called By the Numbers, after all. So, we're going to talk about how many people uh, were casualties in the Great War and kind of just other things to put the war into perspective. maybe military strengths, populations, uh, things like that. Because uh, to do that is to illustrate these things a little more clearly to you so that some of the things that we talk about in the war don't come at you out of uh, a vacuum. And it kind of uh, illustrates the differences between the major powers that fought each other. You know, for example, I mentioned in a previous episode that in the summer of 1914, the Belgian army had seven divisions, um, six infantry and one cavalry division. Well, in a vacuum to a listener who's listening and, and really doesn't know, okay, well, is that a lot of divisions? Is that good? Is that bad? Uh, what even is a division? Um, but if I follow up and say, well, by contrast, the German army had 98 divisions. Uh, Not all of them were on the Western Front, but, you know, right there, just by comparing 7 to 98, you can see this huge uh, discrepancy between the two numbers, and and you can kind of see this this, uh, situation that the world saw when they looked at Belgium fighting to resist the German invasion, this kind of David versus Goliath uh, story. So, you know, another thing is when people talk about the naval arms race that preceded the war, this naval arms race uh, versus uh, where you saw Germany and Britain competing, especially in the area of the number of battleships. Well, it kind of clears things up when when you realize, well, how many uh, of these battleships were even involved? You know, what does that mean? So without further ado... Let's get to some numbers. The following are a bunch of statistics from Encyclopedia Britannica at Britannica.com, which is a source that I I trust very much. Um, As a result of the First World War, about eight and a half to nine million soldiers died. And this was as a result of wounds and or disease. During the Great War, the highest percentage of casualties were caused by artillery. And one of the reasons for this was the constant shelling and the phenomenon of running out into no man's land towards the enemy trench. And while you were out there, even before you were in rifle range or machine gun range of the defending trench, Um, if no man's land that distance exceeded the range of those weapons, you would be getting pummeled by artillery. And not just one line of artillery, there'd be one, two, three lines of artillery all hitting that space when you're attacking. So that was just absolutely devastating. So, you know, by far the highest source of casualties during the war was artillery. Um, It was followed by small arms. When military historians talk about small arms, It's pretty much anything that can be carried by a person. Um, So anything from as small uh, as a a revolver or a grenade to as big uh, of like a machine gun or in World War II, like anti-tank guns, like a bazooka or something. Uh, And then following that is uh, poison gas, uh, which is 
truly horrific and is one of kind of the trademark things that people think about when uh, they think about the First World War. Pre-war military doctrine for a lot of countries, especially the French army, uh, was all about put the bayonet, give them the bayonet, give them the cold steel with élan and, and crin. Elan uh, in French means like it's it's like the spirit. It's kind of like the the esprit de corps. It's like bravery or courage. And cran, like C R A N, was a, a huge word uh, around this time in France. It meant like guts, you know. So that was kind of their policy. Um, they did realize eventually that that was just insane. Uh, charging trenches where you had all these people waiting with rifles and grenades and machine guns and defensive artillery. And you're trying to close the distance as quickly as possible to give them the bayonet. Um, they even said, like, don't stop to shoot. Uh, which, you know, on the one hand does make sense. If you start, if you stop to shoot, you're easier to, to you're, you're an easier target for them to shoot. But in any case, I mentioned that eight and a half million to nine million men uh, died. The leader in casualties, and this is not surprising, was the Russian Empire. Um, they mobilized a total of 12 million men uh, in the war. And of that 12 million, over 9 million became casualties. In a previous episode, I explained kind of when you're talking about military history, battlefield history, stuff like that. What is a casualty? And I always found it easiest to remember is a casualty is anybody that cannot fight again the next day. So it includes uh, killed, wounded, captured, missing, uh, sick, uh, deserters, anything like that. It's just anybody that can't fight again the next day. So when you look at the Russian Empire, over 9 million out of 12 million, the percentage of their mobilized forces that became casualties was 76.3%. And that is just insane. That doesn't mean 76% of them died, but it just meant 76% of them did not make it through the war without something happening to them, without them being killed, wounded, gassed, captured, uh, missing. Usually what it means is this person was killed, but we just didn't find the body. Like it's... We couldn't confirm, so uh, either they crawled off into a forest or, or something like that and died, or more commonly, uh, this is just terrible, they were just blown to pieces by artillery, and we just don't know what happened to them. Either they were just vaporized by a shell, or they were blown to pieces and then eventually covered up by mud and soil or anything like that. Um, well, I'm sorry if this is freaking you out, but I, I mean, this is a podcast about the First World War. So um, so that was the Russian Empire, which was was definitely the, the leader in casualties um, during the war. Next up was France, uh, you know, and, and I think the trauma that France went through during the First World War, this just a whole generation was was wiped out and and the psychological scars that the nation carried i've often believed that that may be one of the reasons why they collapsed so quickly in world war ii is because they just they they were like well we can't do this again um but anyway that's just my personal speculation um france mobilized almost eight and a half million men 
Um, and of those, a little over 6 million became casualties. So their percentage of mobilized forces as casualties, 73.3%. And that's also very, very, very high. The next uh, country, um, so so far we've been talking about the Allies. You know, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the German Empire. They mobilized 11 million men. And of those, a little over 7 million became casualties for a uh, casualty percentage rate of 64.9%. So basically 65%. So yeah, if you went to war for Germany, there was um, two chances in three of something happening to you in the war. Austria-Hungary had extremely high casualties. And I think it's because of... Um, they didn't have the developed supply system that the German Empire had. Uh, their soldiers, uh, their morale was not as high, and they so they were not as well equipped or trained. They didn't have the same level of training as soldiers in the German Empire. Uh, but above all, I think it's because a lot of their military leaders at the highest levels were kind of incompetent and, and lost a lot of men in operations that were uh, just not a success. It's this constant pattern in the First World War. The, Austri the Austro-Hungarians would mount an offensive and it would go poorly and then they would call on Germany for help. So according to Encyclopedia Britannica, they mobilized 7.8 million men and of those, a little over 7 million became casualties. And that's just insane. That's, that's a casualty percentage rate of 90%. Um, not all of those are killed. A huge number of them, in fact, are uh, prisoners and missing. Um, so 2.2 million out of the 7.8 million is prisoners and missing because they did have a few catastrophic battles uh, where they lost a ton of people. Um, the next one uh, that I'd like to talk about for the Central Powers, um, which at their peak was four countries. It was the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire or Turkey and Bulgaria. Uh, everybody always forgets about Bulgaria, but yeah, they actually joined the war on the side of the Central Powers in 1915. Um, they mobilized 1.2 million, uh, which is like, oh, Bulgaria, you're, you're a small, like, where are all those guys coming from? But in any case, uh, they lost 266, 267,000, so 22%. The Ottoman Empire mobilized 2.85 million and um, 975 thousand of those were casualties for a casualty percentage rate of 34.2%. Um, if we go back to the Allies for a second, the British Empire mobilized 8.9 million men, so almost 9 million men, and of those, uh, 3.2 million roughly were casualties for a casualty percentage rate of 35.8%. Um, so they definitely didn't bear the brunt of the German assaults. One thing I'd like to clear up about this is it's, a, it's British Empire. Uh, so this is the entire empire. Like the, the British Isles, like England, Scotland, Wales, is only a small percentage of that. This includes uh, the multitude of soldiers from places like South Africa, India, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, stuff like that. Um, Italy, who was uh, originally allied to the Central Powers, uh, but because Germany's invasion of Belgium was perceived as an aggressive act, 
there was a clause in Italy's alliance contract with the Central Powers that said, we are not bound to join you in a war uh, if it's an aggressive war. So we, we only agreed to this contract in the event of a defensive war. Uh, nonetheless, they did join the war in 1915, but on the side of the Allied powers, and they fought extensively um, against the Austro-Hungarians, especially in a place called the Asanzo River Valley. They mobilized uh, a little over 5.6 million men, and of those 2.2, roughly, 2.2 million of them died for a casualty rate of 39.1%. Uh, so that's, that's still pretty high, and... Uh, Italy's casualties were very much concentrated in like one area. Uh, the last country I'd like to talk about is the United States, who who came out uh, pretty good uh, as a result of the war. They didn't lose a lot of people. Uh, obviously, their country wasn't touched, uh, and they made a lot of money. I uh, believe I mentioned before in a previous episode that over the, cur the course of the First World War, the United States went from being a uh, debtor nation to a creditor nation. But in any case, they mobilized 4.355 million men as a result uh, to join the war. Uh, of those, a little over 116,000 of them died. 204,000 of them were wounded. And about 4,500 were prisoners and missing. So their casualty percentage rate was 8.1%. So, so a tiny bit over 8%. Uh, there were other allied nations involved. I, I'm not going to get to them right now because I just threw a ton of numbers at you. <laughs> You're probably like, oh my god, that's too many numbers. But uh, additional allied countries that I didn't uh, mention are Romania, Serbia, Belgium, Greece, um, even Portugal and Montenegro, stuff like that. I did give you the numbers for the four central powers, the uh, German Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Ottoman Empire, and the Bulgarians. Now let's take a moment to talk about military terminology in World War One, and uh, maybe I should have tackled this topic a little earlier, but uh, here we go. So when you look at the history of the First World War, you run into a lot of key words. These are, these are unit names. Things like division, brigade, battalion, regiment, company, platoon, da-da-da-da-da. So what, what do these words uh, mean? The most common one you're going to run into is division, uh, which I explained earlier. Uh, roughly, you can think of it as 15 to 20,000 men. When I say, when I give you that range, it's because the divisions of different countries were not the same size. There, there were slight differences in how they were organized. Um, but let's start from the top and go down. So the, at the very, very top, the largest formation you could have is an army group. And this was made of two or more armies, uh, often called field armies. Uh, and an army was made of two or more corps, uh, C-O-R-P-S. It's, it's not corps, it's corps. And um, a corps itself was two or more divisions. And division, like that's probably the biggest one. Keep that in your mind. Um, you could have an infantry division or a, or a cavalry division. 
And for the purposes of this illustration, I'm going to be talking about what a British infantry division uh, and a German infantry division, what they looked like in 1914. So that epic summer with the first series of furious battles in Belgium and northern France, what did these formations look like? And this is according to Columbia University. A British infantry division in 1914 was composed of three brigades. Each brigade had four battalions, and each battalion had four companies. And then just one more step down, each company had four platoons. Thus, a division had 12 battalions. So let's go from the top down again. So it goes army group, army, corps, division, and then down to brigade, battalion, company, platoon. If I can explain this a little better, at full strength, a battalion, so remember you had 12 of these per division, had 35 officers and 1,000 men. And a company had five officers and 240 men. In addition to the rifle power of the battalions, the division was armed with 24 machine guns, and its field artillery numbered 76 guns. The division had, in addition, various headquarters and supply units, uh, and about five and a half thousand horses. So again, this is a British infantry division. So if you were a Tommy, uh, a basic British private rifleman, you would be in a platoon. And, and uh, platoon, if my math is correct, there were four platoons per company. And we know that a company had five officers and 240 men. So a um, platoon would be around 60 guys. And, and that would be, those are, those are your boys. That's, those are the people that you see the most and you're the closest to and you have the most contact with. In 1914, a German infantry division was comparable in size, um, and you had two brigades. Each brigade had two regiments, and each regiment had three battalions. And one last step down, each battalion had four companies. Thus, the division had 12 battalions. Uh, so you can see uh, British Infantry Division in 1914, German Infantry Division in 1914, similar size. They both had 12 battalions. It's just slight differences in, you know, terminology. Uh, so for the British one, each brigade had four battalions, uh, whereas in the German one, each brigade had two regiments. So it's almost like a British battalion was equal to half of a German regiment. So the German infantry division at full strength, it uh, the battalion had... Um, 26 officers and 1,050 men. And a company, interestingly, is the same size. So a British company had 240 men. A German company had 240 men. Uh, in addition to the rifle power, the German infantry division had 24 machine guns, 72 guns, uh, various supporting units, and about uh, 4,000 horses for transport. So I hope that wasn't uh, too complicated. I mean, basically, if I could say what is the most, um, which are the key formations to remember, I would say division, because that's often military history books. That's kind of how they measure military strength in World War One is, is divisions. Um, but if you want to go at the very bottom, 
like uh, just group of riflemen, it would be a platoon. Um, <clears throat> and for the uh, Germans, it, it would be a uh, company. Now let's talk about the war on the waves. Ships, fleets, and the rivalry at sea between the British Empire and the German Empire. Before we do, uh, because I'm going to be hitting you with a lot of these like ship types, and I just wanted to give a brief overview of what they mean. So we're going to be talking about dreadnought battleships, battle cruisers, pre-dreadnought battleships, armored cruisers, cruisers, destroyers, and submarines. Uh, you know, what do these words mean? Dreadnought battleships were the latest state-of-the-art battleships. They were really cutting-edge technology. The reason why they're called dreadnoughts is because the first ship that ever appeared of this class was built by the British, and it was called the HMS Dreadnought. HMS standing for uh, His Majesty's Ship or Her Majesty's Ship, depending on who the reigning monarch is. Battle cruisers were the next kind of largest ship. They were essentially cruisers that were more heavily armed and armored. Um, they were f fast, they had powerful engines. Um, you could almost picture them as kind of not mini battleships, but just like one step below uh, dreadnought battleships. And then you have your pre-dreadnought battleships. So going into World War I, the British and German fleets still had a large number of these uh, big battleships that had been really powerful back in their day. But with the advent of these this new class of dreadnought battleships were now kind of obsolete. But because they were so expensive to build, I mean, they were still useful. Um, these dreadnought battleships, battle cruisers, pre-dreadnought battleships, these are what you would call your capital ships. Capital ships are your, your big battle-deciding uh, fighting ships, heavily armed, armored, lots of sailors, a lot of money to build and maintain and keep them running at sea. Underneath uh, pre-dreadnought battleships, you had armored cruisers and cruisers. So your, your cruisers were kind of your, your escort ships. Uh, they were built for traveling large uh, distances. Uh, they were used ex extensively by the British in kind of policing the British Empire, stuff like that. Uh, they were solid escort ships for your, for your capital ships. And then underneath that, you had destroyers. Destroyers were also escort ships, but they were significantly smaller than cruisers, and they were used oftentimes for very specialized uh, duties. So you would have anti-submarine warfare destroyers, or you would have reconnaissance uh, destroyers, patrol boats, you know, coastal defense boats. These were these were your destroyers, and then you had submarines. And I mean, a submarine is a submarine. It's. Uh, you know, it's a, a tube full of sailors under the sea with torpedoes. And in German, um, they use the word U-boat, which is German for Unterseeboot, undersea boat. Um, I always thought it was kind of weird that they called their submarines boats, but uh, well, there you have it. So now let's take a look at some of the numbers. These huge ships, these, these fleet-leading ships, the dreadnought battleships. In 1914, the British had 20. 
and the Germans had 14. And that's probably one of the biggest numbers that military historians look at. But I, I wanted to give an overall picture of the entire fleets. Then we go down to battle cruisers. The British had nine, the Germans had four. Pre-dreadnought battleships. So these are, you know, your big fighting capital ships that would have been a big deal in the 1880s, 1890s, stuff like that, but had become kind of obsolete ever since the dreadnoughts showed up. Uh, nonetheless, in 1914, the British had 39 and the Germans had 22. Then you had armored cruisers. So these are kind of your escort. They're just called armored cruisers because they were just more heavily armored than your you know, regular cruisers. This did make them slower uh, significantly, but they were, they were still very useful. The British had 34, the Germans had nine. Then you had cruisers. The British had 64, the Germans had 41. Destroyers, remember these specialized uh, little fighting warships. They were fast. They were often uh, equipped for specific tasks. Destroyers. The British had 301 to the Germans 144. Now it should be noted here that um, this category of destroyers, it's, you know, it's a two to one advantage, but the British number does include Canadian, Australian and New Zealand destroyers of all classes. Um, you know, these huge capital ships, the colonies often didn't have any of those of their own, but they definitely had destroyers. I just wanted to make a note of that. And then for submarines, um, you had the British 64 to the German 28, but you know, definitely we'll see later on, the Germans made extensive use of their submarines. Um, whereas the British uh, in blockading German ports and stuff, they really leaned much more heavily on their surface ships. The numbers I just gave you, again, are from Encyclopedia Britannica. And one thing that's just so interesting to me when I when I look at the numbers for these two rival fleets, and I remember the vast, vast expenditures in manpower and money and raw materials that these two countries poured into their fleets. It's just so interesting that in World War I, they didn't really use their fleets to actually go to war with each other. There was only one really big naval engagement between the Germans and the British uh, in the First World War. It was called the Battle of Jutland in 1916. But that was pretty much it. Um, the Germans stayed in port for pretty much the entire war, while the British used their surface navy to blockade uh, German port cities prevent them from importing uh, resources, and it was it was very effective. The Germans retaliated, uh, knowing that they couldn't, they, they didn't really think they could beat uh, the surface navy of the British Empire. So that's why they started using submarines um, to kind of try to even the odds uh, a little bit. Um, but yeah, I just think you know when you look at the Second World War and you look at these huge huge naval battles, especially between the Japanese and the Americans. Um, um, but it's just a completely different thing. Remember, in the First World War, um, aircraft carriers were just, just kind of making their appearance. They, they weren't these uh, centerpieces of fleets 
uh, like they would be in the Second World War. Um, your your big deal ship in the First World War was still your battleship. Uh, you had these huge naval guns, uh, thousands of sailors, uh, heavy armor plating. Uh, that was that was it. That was still the centerpiece of your fleet. Another reason why um, the the fleets didn't really engage is the British Admiralty um, realizing, uh, and you see this also on the German side. It's kind of this paradox, like you invested so much time and money and trained so many sailors for these huge fleets that it becomes too valuable to lose. Um, like you don't want to be the officer responsible for losing these huge capital ships. Not to mention, especially in the British Admiralty, a lot of these high naval officers had, you know, sentimental connections. They had served as young officers and midshipmen and stuff like that on a lot of these huge capital ships, and and they just didn't want to lose them. So I just wanted to bring that up because I, I find it very interesting. In the end, the most useful thing that the Royal Navy did during the entire war was not engaging the German fleet in this huge all-or-nothing decisive battle. It was essentially policing the trade routes uh, that pretty much spanned the world, linking the British colonies to the home country, uh, keeping those those supply routes intact, escorting uh, merchant ships, pro uh, protecting them from German submarine attacks, as well as the naval blockade of Germany. This, ha this had a really big effect on the war. Um, Germany had chronic supply problems and in many cases actually had to um, develop synthetic substitutes for a lot of raw materials that they just didn't have. Next, I wanted to give you a general impression of the populations of these countries that were fighting each other. And these numbers come from Brill's Encyclopedia of the First World War. Um, let's start with the Allied powers. So in the First World War, the population of Great Britain and Ireland, I, that's critical. Uh, Ireland at this point, was they had not achieved independence yet. They had a population of 46 million. And this was compared to France's 39 million, Italy's 36 million, uh, Russia's 164 million, and the United States, which was just shy of 100 million people. Um, I hope that helps a little bit. You know, for context, some of the British dominions, uh, for example, Australia at this point was 4.5 million, New Zealand was 1.1 million. But uh, as for the Central Powers, um, during the war, the German Empire, Germany, um, was a little over 67 million, while their ally to the south, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, this uh, huge collection of all different peoples and languages and groups, they had a population of about 53 million. Bulgaria was 4.7 million. And the Ottoman Empire, I really thought, uh, you know, when you look at a map of the region and you see all of this territory occupied by the Ottoman Empire, I really thought this number would be higher. But it's 17.3 uh, uh, million people. 
So I, I just wanted to quickly give you an impression of kind of, well, how big really uh, were these countries that were fighting each other? You know, like it, in the First World War, I just said uh, the United States of America, 100 million. Well, now the United States is well over 300 million. So I hope that helps a little bit to kind of conceptualize these, uh, how big these countries were in relation to each other. The First World War was truly a war of artillery. And one of the most critical things for all of the combatant nations involved was how fast can we crank out shells for our guns? Um, this kind of struck uh, all of these nations. It kind of caught them by surprise in the first few months of the war, just how quickly they burned through their reserves of shells. Um, they, it, it really, they were going through shells much, much faster than they could uh, produce them. And so they really had to ramp up production. Uh, this was especially bad in Russia, but it, it kind of afflicted all the nations involved. So how about these numbers from Scientific American magazine? Between 1914 and 1918, every country involved in the war as a participant or a supplier dramatically increased shell production. In Germany, Shell production of all calibers increased from 343,000 a month in 1914, so right when things are getting started. By the end of the war, it had increased to 11 million a month in 1918. Like, it's just mind-boggling the amount of shells they were cranking out, and they weren't the only ones. From 1914 to 1918, Germany and Austria-Hungary produced up to 680 million shells. And the industries of the Allies, France, Britain, Russia, up until the Russian Revolution, Italy, the United States, and Canada, produced up to 790 million shells. It does say in brackets the statistics vary greatly, but still, I, there's a little uh, thing at the end that says the U.S. itself alone produced between 30 to 50 million of these shells. And uh, it's just insane. It's mind-boggling the amount of shells that these countries threw at each other. And the crazy thing is, in parts of Belgium, uh, Flanders, northern France, a lot of these shells are still in the earth. Uh, for many years afterwards, Belgian and French farmers would complain about la récolte de fer, the iron harvest because they would be working on their fields and they'd find these old shells. Um, and I think it even still happens today in certain, in certain fields. Well, that's going to do it for us today. I really hope that this multitude of numbers that I threw at you helped at least a little bit in understanding the First World War. We talked about the price in blood that was paid by the fighting nations. Uh, I attempted to explain what a division is and kind of some of the military terminology of a lot of the different levels of units by examining the structure of a British and German infantry division in 1914 and hopefully that was helpful we talked about naval statistics and the size of the rival german and british fleets uh, and later on i kind of 
I, I wanted to give you guys an impression of uh, the populations of the countries involved, uh, give you a general idea of the size of those countries. Finally, we closed out with an examination of the production of shells because World War I truly was about just this vast multitude of guns just constantly lobbing, firing shells at each other. So, all in all, I really hope this episode was helpful. You've been listening to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host.